0: The sermon text for today is Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. The Old Testament reading will come from Zechariah chapter 1 verses 7 through 17 and I know this is a bit unusual but also Zechariah 6 1 through 8 and so we will give attention to both of those Old Testament passages before coming to Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. It's important to know something about the book of Zechariah before we read from these passages. The prophet Zechariah ministered uh, to the people of God in the 6th century BC after they returned to Jerusalem, after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. So put yourself there a bit. The people through their disobedience had been taken into captivity for 70 years. They remained there. And then they began to return uh, to Jerusalem. And they began to rebuild the temple and reestablish proper worship. Uh, This must have been very exhilarating, wouldn't you agree? Uh, It is kind of a very significant act of redemption, if you will. It is not the exodus, it's not quite on par with that, but here God is bringing his people out of captivity in Babylon back to uh, their, their land. It must have been exhilarating for them, but after some time the people found themselves living in very challenging situations. Uh, To put it really simply, the heathen nations flourished around them while Judah struggled. So it's not hard to imagine uh, the question that must have been on their minds. Where is our God in the midst of all of this struggle? Right? He has brought us back. We were so hopeful. We were so excited to be brought back and to rebuild the temple and to begin in the proper worship of God. Uh, But we are struggling. Where is our God, they wondered. Has he abandoned us? And so, with that as the background, I want you to hear now the reading of God's word from Zechariah chapter one, verses seven through seventeen. On the twenty, uh, on the twentieth, uh, the twenty fourth day, excuse me, on the twenty fourth day of the eleventh month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, "I saw in the night." And behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing amongst the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Can you picture it, church? You have to use your imagination here, this vision that the prophet Zechariah saw. Then I said, what are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing amongst the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. In other words, they were exceedingly harsh with the people of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry aloud, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Let's go now to Zechariah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. Again, the prophet sees a vision. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, "'What are these, my lord?' And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horse goes towards the north north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and to patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest. In the north country. Let's turn now to Revelation chapter 6. We'll read also verses 1 through 8. Uh, This is the sermon text for today. And before reading this text, I would simply like to point out that the experience of the Christians living in 90 AD was not not all that different from the situation of the people living in Jerusalem after returning from exile. In the sixth century BC. In both instances, the people of God had experienced a great act of deliverance. In both instances, the people of God had high hopes. And in both instances, the people of God struggled in this world, being assaulted by troubles from without and also within. The question, therefore, was the same where is God in the midst of all of this? I want you to notice that the vision shown to John shares much in common with the vision shown to Zechariah 600 years earlier. I think that is very significant. Here is the vision that John saw. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So far, the reading of God's word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it as well. I would like to begin by proposing to you that All human beings must find a way to make sense of the world around them. Something we must do. We must somehow make sense of the world around us. Some go about the business of making sense of the world very casually and even unknowingly. They don't think much about it directly, but they have made sense of the world somehow. They have categories for everything, a way of organizing their thoughts so that they look at the world and they have a particular view. Others approach the task with more of a deliberate intensity. We typically call these types philosophers and theologians. Uh, But my point is that everyone must do it. Everybody, to one degree or another, must make sense of the world. It would be very difficult, I think, for a person to function at all in the world without first making some sense of it, having some categories by which they understand the things that they see in this world, this task is necessary both for the Christian and the non-Christian. Both must have a world view. The same questions confront all of us: What are we? Where did we come from? What is the purpose for our existence? Is this world all that there is? What is right and wrong, and how do we know it? Is there a God? If so, what is He like, and what is our obligation towards Him? What of The evil and suffering that we see in the world. How are we to understand all of that? And if there is a God, how are we to understand his relationship to the evil and suffering that we see in the world? These are the kinds of questions that all people do have to wrestle with to one degree or another. They have to make sense of the world around them. Uh, Both the Christian and the non-Christian must wrestle with these questions, but it should be noticed that we go about finding answers to these questions in very different ways. Uh, The non-Christian looks to the stuff of this world as ultimately authoritative in his or her quest for truth. Uh, What exactly is given the place of supreme authority is going to differ from person to person, of course. Uh, For some, it is human reason. They say this, I believe this or that because it makes rational sense to me. Uh, For others, it is emotion. I I feel like this must be true, they say. Others base their opinions upon experience. Still others base their opinions on so-called scientific investigation. Uh, Different sources of ultimate and supreme authority, but, but the point remains that the non-Christian looks to the stuff of this world as finally authoritative. But the Christian, well, while not denying the usefulness of these things, understands the limitation of things like human reason, human emotion, human experience, and even scientific investigation. These things are limited and really cannot serve as adequate sources for ultimate truth. Uh, it's really outside the scope of the sermon today to explain why these things are inadequate. Uh, But for now, I will simply say that they are inadequate because we are creatures. And more than that, we are fallen. We are limited creatures. We do not know all things. We have very limited perspectives on the world. We only know so much. Even if we devote our lives to learning, we can only learn uh, so much. And even more than that, we are fallen creatures. And so we must remember that even what we do know is potentially distorted by our sinful hearts. We are, by nature and apart from Christ, twisted. And we tend to twist truth uh, wherever it is found. So the Christian looks not to the things of this world as our highest authority for truth, but where do we look, brothers and sisters? We look not to the things of this world, but to God. God is truth. And we believe that this God, who is truth, has at many times and in many ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. In other words, we believe that God is truth, and we believe that God is a God who reveals himself uh, to us. He reveals truth uh, to us. This God of truth has determined to reveal himself. He has revealed himself to us in human history. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He spoke to Abraham. He revealed himself to Moses and to Israel when he delivered them out of Egypt. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? He has revealed himself in history. He has actually showed up and he has revealed himself to his creatures. Um, above all, he has revealed himself to us by sending the Son. Christ walked on this earth and he, 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 was, he was seen there. and He was heard speaking and, and teaching. He has revealed the Father to us. God has revealed himself in human history, and he has also appointed and anointed men to write the scriptures, which are an inspired record and interpretation and application of those great historical events. God revealed himself to Moses on Sinai. The people saw the glory of God therein that place. They heard His voice. They received those Ten Commandments, didn't they? And then what? Scriptures were written by Moses and others, which were a record of those events and an explanation of them. The same can be said of the life of Christ. He came and He tabernacled amongst us. We beheld His glory. The disciples there ate and drank with Him. They heard His voice. They saw Him with their eyes. They witnessed Him die and rise again on the third day. And then those same apostles, those eyewitnesses of Christ, wrote The scriptures as a record of that historical event and as an interpretation application of them. And so, after all, what do we have as our authority for truth? We have God as our authority for truth, but we have the holy scriptures now. It is to the scriptures that we go. We see them as ultimately authoritative. The Old Testament and the New is authoritative for us. And we as Christians aim to honor it as authoritative and to submit our lives to it. To submit our lives to it. We do not seek to establish an authority of our own, to kind of find our own path or our own way in this world, but rather we seek to submit to God, to Christ, and to His Word in all things. And I want to show you brothers and sisters, that the Holy Scriptures provide answers to the worldview questions that I have listed above. They provide answers to these major worldview questions that I have listed above. Uh, May I suggest to you that your mental health, and more than that, your maturity in Christ and your stability in Christ, depends in large part, not entirely, but in large part, upon your worldview. The question is, is your worldview biblical? Is your worldview the one that God has given to you? In other words, have you adopted God's view of the world as your own? Have you submitted to it? Have you submitted to God and to his word? Or have you decided to remain independent from God, to find your own way and to craft your own view of things? That is the question. And here lies the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian then. The Christian hears the word of God and surrenders to it. The non-Christian, upon hearing God's word, recoils from it and sets out to make his own path. Of all the worldview questions that I listed above, I would really imagine that the last two are the most difficult for, for Christians to answer and to find agreement on. I find that Christians tend to be relatively united in answering the questions, what are we? Where did we come from? What is the purpose for our existence? Is this world all that there is? What is right and wrong? And how do we know it? Is there a God? If so, what is He like? And what is our obligation to Him? I find that Christians tend to be quite united as it pertains to these questions. But I find that Christians are often divided when pressed to answer the question, How are we to understand the evil and suffering that we see in the world? How are we to understand God's relationship to the evil and suffering that we see? Indeed, the world is filled with suffering, isn't it? It's hard to ignore that. The world is filled with with suffering. I think here of sufferings that we experience personally and individually, but also sufferings on a national level when kingdoms rise up against kingdoms. Uh, The evils that we face in this world really cannot be denied. Uh, The question is, how are we to understand these sufferings especially as they pertain to God. Where is He in relation to the suffering? Is He the direct cause of it? Does He do the evil? Our Christianly impulse is to say, certainly not. He does not do evil. He does not cause it directly. We think of passages such as James one thirteen, which says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself no one, James 1.13. Also, 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Many other passages could be cited, uh, but the point is this, by no means would we ever suggest that the Holy One is the author of sin. We would deny that intensely. But then should we say that God has nothing to do with suffering at all? That is my next question. Should we say that he has nothing to do with suffering at all? And I think indeed many who call themselves Christians today would take this view. They would say this, God has nothing to do with the sufferings experienced in this world. And that view does seem very attractive at first, doesn't it? It seems to protect God's reputation. There you are looking out upon the world and you see that terrible things happen to people. You see that terrible things are happening even now all around the world. Great atrocities are being committed. You you read the newspaper, you watch the news. I mean, you cannot ignore it. And it seems uh, appetizing at first to say, well, God has nothing to do with that at all. Uh, but the problem is that the view will not stand, for it contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. Also, it contradicts our basic understanding of the nature of, of God listen to what Isaiah 45 5 through 7 says I am the Lord and there is no other besides me there is no God I equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me I am the Lord and there is no other I form light and I create darkness I make well-being and I create calamity I am the Lord who does all these things do you hear the language here God is not seeking to distance himself from the calamity that we observe in the world, but he is rather saying to some extent he is there and he is involved to, to some degree. Indeed, the scriptures are clear from beginning to end that God is king over all. Isn't he? He is king over all. He is Lord most high. Nothing stands outside of his sovereign control. Here again, the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 48, verses 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Indeed, it is the most basic tenet of, of the Christian religion that God is the one true God he is the creator of heaven and earth and he has decreed all things that it have and, and shall come to pass. He is, he is sovereign over all. I want you just to remember the scroll that John saw in God's right hand there in the book of Revelation chapters 4 and 5 particularly chapter 5 where was God seen as seated? He was seated on the throne as king Over all things, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, the scriptures say to us. And what is in God's right hand but a scroll? And what does that scroll represent except the decrees of God? It is God's decree, his his declaration um, as to what will happen uh, from that day forward. Christ alone was found worthy to break the seals on that scroll. And when he does, what is revealed to us is what... God has decreed. When I decree something, when I decree something, it might happen. Right? Sometimes I make decrees in my household. And it might happen. When, when God decrees something, it happens. It happens. For our God is the Almighty. There is none like Him. He is Lord Most High. He is enthroned in Heaven. Our confession beautifully summarized the biblical teaching on the, doc, uh, on the, on the decree of God in, in chapter 3. The whole chapter is devoted to this subject. In chapter 3 of our confession, here is what we read. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. That is, that is biblical truth there summarized for us. God has decreed all things that will come to pass. When did God decree? When did he do it? We are to confess that he did so from all eternity. That is a way of saying from before creation. And who counseled God to decree what he decreed? Who was his counselor there before the heavens and the earth were created that God would decree what he decreed? The answer is no one at all. He has decreed in himself, and he has done so by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. He decreed what he decreed freely, and it is unchangeable. And what does his decree pertain to? Only the good that comes about in the world? Is that what his decree pertains to? Only the good that we see? Only the things that we enjoy? No, but our confession is right to say that God hath decreed all things whatsoever that comes to pass. This is a very accurate summary of what the Bible teaches on the subject. We serve a God who is God most high. He is Lord over all. It is interesting, though, that our confession is careful to make qualifications concerning this doctrine. uh, Qualifications which are also derived from Holy Scripture. Chapter 3, paragraph 1, continues saying this, Yet, is God neither the author... "...of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree." The the language of our confession, I think, is most helpful here. It brings out what the Scriptures have to say on this subject. Though it is true that God has decreed all things... We must maintain that he is, at the same time, not the author of sin, nor does he have fellowship with any therein, nor does he violate the will of his creatures, but rather works in such a way that he brings about his purposes through the free choices of his creatures. He brings about his purposes, not always in a direct way, but often through what the confession calls second causes. The language of permission is also helpful here. God carries out his decree, sometimes directly, but often by way of what we might call permission. He permits evil and even uses it to bring about his ultimate purposes and the supreme good. I want you to listen again to the way that our confessions summarize the Bible's teaching on this subject. In chapter 5, paragraph 4, which is all about the providence of God, here is what we read. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in His providence that His determinate counsel extendeth even to the first fall. And all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth, in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures, and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or a of sin." This statement is very carefully crafted. It acknowledges that God has decreed all things that will come to pass. This must include even the first fall. Think about that for a moment. This must include even the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. But the sinfulness itself proceeds from where? Does it proceed from God? Our confession is clear to say that it proceeds only from the creatures and not from God who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. I love what our confession says because it is deeply biblical. On the one hand it guards against the error of claiming that God is the author of sin. That would be a most blasphemous thing to say and on the other hand it guards against the error of trying to Pretend as if God has nothing to do at all with the evil and suffering that we see in the world. What it does declare about sin and suffering and God's relationship to it is that one, he is not the author of it nor does he take part in it. Two, he is certainly sovereign over it having decreed all things and providentially bringing all things to pass. And three, God does so through second causes, through means, by way of what we might call giving permission to the creature. He has permitted sin and suffering. Uh, But notice the language of our confession also. In chapter uh, 5, paragraph 4, we've already read it. The, the, The confession says that this is not by a bare permission. Not by a bare permission. In other words... The permission that God gives is not naked. It's not meaningless or purposeless. Instead, God has permitted what He has permitted for a reason. For a reason. With a purpose in mind. Is it a purpose that we can understand and fully comprehend? I would have to say, no, it is mysterious to us. Why has God done what He has done? Why has He decreed what He has decreed? Why is He doing what He is doing the way that He is doing it? I will not even pretend to have the answer to all of that, but we are obligated to say what the Scriptures say and to not say what the Scriptures do not say. We must both confess that God is not the author of sin, but yet He is still sovereign even over the sin and suffering that we see in the world, and through it is bringing about his ultimate purposes, which are in the end good, holy, and pure. If I had to choose only one text of Scripture to illustrate the principles I've just stated, it would have to be Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. Just such a brief little section of Scripture, and it's a text of Scripture that describes to us. Uh, Peter's preaching after Pentecost. He begins to preach the gospel and he begins to confront those who crucified Christ. And here's what he says. Just listen carefully to what Peter Peter says. And, And keep in mind all that has just been said about God's decree and his providence, sin and suffering and God's relationship to it. Here's what Peter says. Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attests to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of who? God. You crucified by ki- and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And I'll ask you this was there ever an act more sinful than that of the crucifixion of Christ? I can't think of one. To crucify the Christ was a most sinful thing to do. But yet, even this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But who committed the sin of crucifying the Christ? Is the blame shifted now to God? Does Peter blame God for the sin? No, instead, what does Peter do? He looks at the creature. He looks at the men who were responsible for handing him over to the Romans and having him crucified by lawless men. He says, you did it. You crucified him. God decreed it, and then evidently, what did he do? He, he permitted that these men act according to the own sin, their own sinful tendencies. But was it a bare permission Was it just a naked and meaningless and purposeless permission, God allowing the Christ to be crucified as he was? We would say, by no means. In fact, we see here in this one act the the, the sin of crucifying the Christ, the suffering that the Christ endured. We see in this uh, the purposes of God all coalesce. They all come together. Here, this is the most significant event in human history. God's purposes were advanced greatly uh, by this one act. And so we see illustrated in this text, uh, the, per, the the principles that have been stated above was there ever an act more sinful than the crucifixion of Christ was there ever suffering greater than his suffering and yet even this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God who committed the sin did God do it no it was the creature who sinned by willingly hanging the Christ to the tree God decreed it then permitted it but it was not a bare permission not a meaningless and purposeless permission no no Instead, through the crucifixion of Christ, God brought about much good indeed. So we have in this event an example of how it is that God works in this world. It's infinitely complex. I don't, comp- I don't claim to understand it at all uh, in terms of the complexity of it. I don't even claim to have the ability to articulate the mechanics of it. Indeed, it is so infinitely complex and beyond our ability to comprehend that we must admit that it is mysterious to us. But the scriptures do reveal to us what we must and must not say. Though the particulars remain mysterious, we know where the boundaries are, don't we? We know that it would be wrong to say that God is the author of sin. We also know that it would be wrong to say that sin and suffering is outside God's sovereign control. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ today make this error, I'm afraid. They pretend that God is sovereign over some things, over some things. Sin, even the first fall and the sin of the crucifixion of Christ is to be understood as an outworking of the decree of God. The the, the fall had to be decreed by God and permitted by Him after all because uh, when did God ordain that the Christ would die for sins? When did that happen? The scriptures are abundantly clear. This was something that he decided prior to creation. Prior to creation itself. When did God elect his elect? Prior to creation. All of that implies the fall, doesn't it? It involves the fall. You're wondering uh, what all of this has to do with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, aren't you? Or maybe you've been so lost and you forgot that we're studying the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. What does this have to do with the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Here is what I would argue. I would argue that what John saw upon the opening of the first four seals of Revelation, chapter 6, is again a depiction, a picture of the principles that I just articulated to you, especially as it pertains to the tribulations experienced by God's people in the world that come as a result of military conquest and political persecution. It's a picture of that. That's how the book of Revelation goes about disseminating information. It does not state it in a didactic way, in a way of teaching, in a direct form of speech, but rather the book of Revelation communicates truth by way of of image and picture. You've grown used to that by now, haven't you? And I think what we see here, when these first four seals of the seven seals are opened, we see these four horsemen, and they depict the principles that I have just set before you, this idea that God is not the author of evil, nor is the author of, of sin, but he's sovereign over it and using it, even for good, to advance his ultimate Purposes. When John saw the first four seals opened, those seals answer the question How am I to understand the suffering that I see in this world that comes even upon God's people by way of warring nations and persecuting powers? Put yourselves there in the 90 AD church and remember the letters that were written to them at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Many of them described political persecution coming upon the people of God. So here they are. Christ is risen from the grave. The church is born. The gospel of the kingdom is being preached. There's a lot of excitement associated with that. The disciples, even after Christ's resurrection, are still asking the question, are you going to bring in the kingdom now? Is it, is it now, Lord? Is it now? There must have been so much excitement having to do with the inbreaking of the new covenant and that new age. But you hear now the people of God by 90 AD are living in the world. And Are they flourishing in this world? No, they like the people of judah in the days of zechariah having high hopes and high expectations were beginning to feel perhaps disappointment realizing that they're not thriving in this world but they're experiencing tribulation they're experiencing persecution by way of political powers they're seeing wars arise around them uh, and they're wondering uh, where is god Where is our God in the midst of all of this? Where where is He, and how is He related to all of this? Is this from Him, or is He aloof? Is He disconnected? The the first four seals answer that question. I I want you to put yourself in their shoes, but maybe even just put yourself in a modern-day situation. Put yourself in the middle of Syria today. Go and imagine living in Aleppo, right, and seeing the devastation all around you, the buildings crumbling. Look to your right and see your children thin from lack of nutrition. Think of all the people that you, you, you have lost, loved ones who have, who have been caught up in this conflict. Certainly there are Christians in that place, brothers and sisters. You do realize that. Certainly there must be Christians in that place. Imagine yourself as a Christian there. In that devastation, it's hard for us, I think, as Americans. You know, we enjoy so much peace and prosperity. It's hard for us, but we must imagine this, right? Right? How are you going to make sense of all of that as a Christian living in the midst of a situation like that? Where is God in relation to all of this suffering that that I am experiencing, that I'm living through? Uh, Revelation 6 gives an answer to it. Where is God? Where is He in Revelation chapter 6? Answer my question. Where is He? He's enthroned. He's enthroned. He is evidently permitting and even using the sin and suffering to advance his purposes, bringing judgment upon his enemies, and also refinement to his people. There is even more gospel, good news, as the seal cycle advances. We'll come to it uh, in a couple of weeks, but seal five gives us a vision of those who had been slain. Where are slain? By, by the sword. Where are they? Uh, they're, they're, they're in the presence of God. Uh, so these seals... Provide an answer to these questions that Christians have wrestled with throughout the ages. Notice that John is still looking in upon the throne of God as described in chapters 4 and 5. He's still looking there and he sees the Lamb standing before the throne, and, he brings, and this, this Lamb, who is the Christ, begins to open the seals one at a time. And when the seals are open, things begin to happen. Uh, things begin to happen. The the first thing that happens when each of the first four seals are opened, you'll notice the repetition in the text, one of the four living creatures says with a voice of thunder, come, can you imagine it? Uh, Remember that these four living creatures, they're strange in appearance, they are angels who have particularly to do with God's activity to all four corners of the earth. And they yell out, proclaim with a loud voice, come, and when they come, who arrives, who shows up on the scene except a horse with a rider on it? One after the next, four in total. And John says he, he, looks and behold, he looked and behold a white horse, after that a red one, and after that a black horse, and after that a pale, uh, ashen green uh, horse, I think is the way to, to understand it. Uh, the description of these horses should without a doubt remind us of what Old Testament text? Zechariah chapter... 1, and especially Zechariah chapter 6. John describes each of these horses as having riders on them, a rider or riders on them. The rider on the white horse had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. The rider on the bright red horse was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. The rider on the black horse had a pair of scales in his hand. And John heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The rider on the pale horse, they had names. The first name was Death. The other was named Hades. He followed after him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. The question is this, Who or what do these horses and their riders represent? Aren't you curious about that? Who are they? Who do they represent? And it's interesting to note what the dispensational premillennialists say. It's interesting to note. uh, Warren Wiersbe, who is a beloved commentator, many have enjoyed his commentaries, and I will admit he has wonderful things to say in many of his commentaries. But here is how he, a dispensational premillennialist, interprets the, the rider. Uh, on the first horse, the white horse, he clearly states that this is the Antichrist. And here is his explanation. I want you to hear it, and I want you to think about what has been said before about the difference between the futurist, dispensational, premillennial interpretation of the book of Revelation and ours. Think about that. Here is what Wearsby says. Daniel states, first word in his explanation Daniel states that there is a prince that shall come who will make a covenant with Israel to protect her from her enemies. In other words, the future world dictator begins his career as a peacemaker. He will go from victory to victory and finally control the whole world. I disagree with Weirsby, but I want you to see what he does. I want to use it as an example of what the futurist does. First, he misinterprets Daniel chapter 9, and expects his reader to assume that his view of that text is the correct one. If you go to Daniel chapter 9, don't do it now, but if you were to do it, uh, you'll find that it's better to see the reference in Daniel 9 to a prince that shall come, who shall make a covenant, as referring to Christ, Christ himself. Christ is the one who has made a covenant with his people. But ironically, Wearsby says that it refers to Antichrist. You can't get more of a different opinion, right? Christ or Antichrist. After, in my opinion, misinterpreting Daniel chapter 9, he then imagines that the opening of the first seal describes something that will happen when? In our future. Where the text of Revelation teaches this, I still do not know. But after making this to be only about the future... He then enfor- enforces his faulty interpretation of Daniel 9 upon the text of Revelation chapter 6, and voila, what you have is the opening of the first seal now supporting the dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial system. In one paragraph, he accomplishes that. By giving priority to the book of Daniel, by misinterpreting Daniel 9, by thrusting that interpretation upon Revelation 6 after assuming that this must be all about the future. So he says the rider on the white horse has not come yet, but he will. And this describes the Antichrist himself. But here is my argument against that interpretation. Clearly it is not Daniel 9, but Zechariah 1 and 6 that is behind this text. And what did the visions of Zechariah 1 and 6 communicate to their original audience Were not the people of God who had returned from exile in Babylon struggling deeply? Were they not facing persecution and poverty? The nations around them were at peace and were prospering, but they, God's people, were pitifully poor and weak. They were persecuted and pressed down by their enemies continuously. When Zechariah saw the vision of the colored horses and their riders, whose job it was to patrol the earth, what was the message being communicated there except this? God is Lord over all. He is Lord over all the earth, He has the power to put down nations and to raise them up. And God was saying to the people of Israel in that day, I am God and I will accomplish all of my purposes. This was the message communicated through Zechariah, through Zechariah to the people of God in that day. And here is my question. Should we not assume that it is this same message being communicated to the people of God in John's day and even in our day? That though we live in an age that is marked by trial and tribulation, famine and war, though we live in a day like that, we are to see that God is the Lord, not just of a particular nation, but of all the earth. Though nation rise up against nation, and though political powers persecute, God's purposes will prevail, for He has decreed all things and is bringing them to pass, even to this very day. That is the message being communicated by the appearance of these four horsemen. They're sent out into all the earth to do what God indeed has commanded that they do. God permits them to do certain things. And so it gives an answer to the question where is God in the midst of all of the tribulation that I'm experiencing and seeing in this world? Where is He, brothers and sisters? He's on the throne. And these Creatures are summoned to him and they are given certain authorities and they are permitted to go out and to do what God has decreed that they do. I really do hesitate to give an exact answer to the question, who do these horsemen represent? I've already quoted Weirsby, who presents the idea that these four horsemen represent, or the first of the four horsemen represents the Antichrist. He's certainly not the only one who holds to that view, there are many others Others say the first horseman is Christ himself. So again, you can't get views more contradictory than those. The description of Christ there, of the first horseman there, leads them to say that. White robe, white horse, crown, sword. Christ appears in that way later in the book of Revelation. Some say that the riders are demonic and evil. Others say that they are good. And to be quite honest with you, I don't think that the horses and riders are meant to symbolize any one particular creature or person, but rather the idea that God is active in this world, bringing about His purposes of judgment and redemption continuously. He is sovereign over all and brings about His purposes both directly and indirectly through means and by permitting both angels and men to do what they will do freely and from the heart. I think that is the general message being communicated here. I know that you might want more particulars than that, but at this point I'm not willing to say they represent this or that directly. Clearly, war and the effects of war are depicted here in the first four seals. Do you see that? The rider on the first horse conquers with the sword. The rider on the second horse seems to depict civil war as men slay one another. The rider on the third horse depicts famine. A day's worth of bread costs a day's wage. Imagine that. So every penny you make goes to just the basic necessities of of life there's not anything left over the rider on the fourth horse depicts death and the grave itself which is the result of the three things listed before and so what does this depict here the first four seals are a picture of what christ said these last days would be like "'Remember, brothers and sisters, that he taught his disciples in a most direct way, saying, "'See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, "'I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. "'See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. "'For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, "'and there will be famine and earthquakes in various places. "'All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains.' My interpretation of Revelation 6 is this. What Christ says directly in Matthew 24 is depicted in Revelation 6. The heavenly scene also communicates this, that in the midst of all, God is enthroned. He is enthroned. These wars and famines happen because God has decreed them and has permitted them for reasons that we cannot fully comprehend. But also notice that in His mercy, He has limited the tribulation, He has liber- limited the suffering. He has restrained all of these conflicts. Only of the only a fourth of the earth is subjected to the tribulation in this period of time, the last days, the time between Christ's first and second coming. It's restrained, and even uh, though the bread is scarce, it is still available, isn't it? A day's wage does buy bread, and the oil and wine can still be had. You know, the oil and wine can still be had. Friends, these first four seals not only depict how things will be in the future, they do depict that, by the way. They have to do with the future. Uh, Indeed, perhaps these things will grow in intensity near to the end. I believe that they will. They do have to do with the future, but not only that, they also have to do with how things are now and how they have been. It is here from this heavenly vision that the Christian who suffers is to draw encouragement. We are encouraged not by the ridiculous notion that God has nothing to do with the sufferings we see in the world, but that he is somehow involved. He is near to us, even in the midst of suffering. Indeed, he is working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we are comforted by the fact that you are on the throne. We do suffer in this world, Lord. You told us it would be so. We suffer to a much lesser degree in this land than our brothers and sisters in Christ do to the far reaches of the earth. We pray for them, Lord, that you would support them in their tribulation, that they would remain true to you to the very end, that they would fix their eyes upon these truths that are communicated in the book of Revelation and elsewhere, that you are enthroned, Lord. May they draw encouragement from that fact. May they cling to you by faith and endure to the very end and thus be saved. Lord, I pray for us who experience sufferings of a different kind and of a different degree, that you would also make us mindful of these truths. If persecution were to come upon us ever in an intense way, Lord, may we have the faith to endure it. I pray that these truths that are set forth in your word would reside deep within us, that we would believe them truly, so that we would stand in the face even of persecution, Lord. We thank we are thankful that you are sovereign over all. We do confess that you have the ability to use even that which we would call evil for good. We do not understand it, Lord, how it can be, how it works, but we confess it is true and we take comfort in you, God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who is most holy, who is most wise. Increase our faith, Lord. Help us to live and walk according to your ways. We say this in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people say, Amen.